Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Okay, well, welcome. To today's episode, we have Nadine Persad. She is a social worker and a senior director of client services from Kensington Health in the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area in Canada. And she has been the past director of client services for uh, and, and a coordinator of volunteer services at a residential hospice. So welcome to the podcast today, Nadine. Thank you. Nadine, I know you've listened to our podcast and are a fan, so I'd love to hear what you think of it and what we were trying to do with this whole with this whole movement. So I love um, that you guys are palliative care physicians, that you are leading this and that so it's really a passion of yours. And I think that in order to be doing this work, you have to have passion because people often say, you know, I'm doing my lit review right now for my dissertation and my supervisors are like, Nadine, everything is so negative. So why would people want to work in palliative care if all the data is showing? you know, burnout, compassion, fatigue, emotional distress. And I'm like, well, something keeps us there. And it probably is our passion to do this work. I love your seven keys. I think they're really inspiring. I think they're simplistic enough that anybody can understand them, but comprehensive enough for us to be able to provide holistic care, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I was just going to say, so you have cared for people in long-term care, which is um, often referred to as a nursing home in other countries. Um, And you also care for people in, you said, a residential hospice. You have um, 10 people you care for there. So what are the big differences between those two populations? I think that's a really good question. And I think often people think there are these huge diverse differences between long-term care and hospice care. And I think that's where palliative care gets lost. So often we see people in long-term care are all palliative and people don't seem to understand that. So from the moment someone moves into long-term care, they are palliative. And when they come to our hospice, death is imminent and they're living with a shorter prognosis. So I think that the biggest difference is that um, it's a longer length of stay. So the average length of stay at our hospice is 18 to, it was about 22 days, three weeks. And at our long-term care home, it's about two years. So there's a longer trajectory of illness. I think um, at our hospice, we tend to see a lot of people that are not, you know, over 80 and 90 years old. We see a lot of younger people. Through the pandemic, we've supported a number of people within two weeks, I think we had a 24-year-old, a 31-year-old, a 32-year-old, really, really struggling with um, a lot of these, you know, issues. And so we see a younger population at our hospice as opposed to long-term care, where we tend to see people who are um, older. Um, I think there is a misconception that people in long-term care are not dying, that dementia is not a terminal illness, and people don't die from dementia, and people actually do die from dementia. So when people come into our homes and, you know, we're talking about advanced care planning, they're looking at us like, well, why are we talking about this? My mom's never going to die and my dad's never going to die. And we've actually started talking about palliative care as soon as someone moves in so that when they go through that trajectory of illness, they understand that this is the care that they're getting. It's just different from a hospice. Can I follow up? I'm really curious because you have this social work background and we've had a lot of doctors. We've had one nurse. Like, um, What is the unique role of social work? in hospice palliative care, would you say? 
So I think, you know, I think there's such a unique role for psychosocial care because we know how to manage pain with medications, especially in Canada when we have like an abundance of access. When you look at in countries like, you know, India and Africa where they can't get basic Tylenol and here in Canada, we have so much access to things like that. What we what we tend to fall short on is um, is existential distress and supporting people with, you know, the things that they face and the fears that they face at end of life that really comes through strong psychosocial support. So I think the role of social work really allows us to provide total pain and address total pain, which is what hospice palliative care is really about. So after I, um, I got into this work, I realized that there's huge gaps within the psychosocial field and how we kind of support, um, support residents in, in long-term care. When I look at the way our hospice is funded, we're really just funded for nursing care. We're not funded for anything else. We're not funded for nutrition. We're not funded for social work. We're not funded for, you know, the lights that keep everything going. And I think these things are so important and integral to what they, to what we do in hospice care. When you talk about the existential suffering, um, what types of themes do you see? I think, you know, we see a lot of people um, worried about leaving their loved ones behind. Like, what is this going to look like for my loved ones? You know, is my care going to become so heavy that they can't manage? Am I going to become a burden? Um, we often see people worried about, you know, pain and what death is going to look like. And am I going to die in pain? I see a lot of people struggling with independence and autonomy. You know, am I going to lose my ability? Am I going to lose my cognition? So we've seen an increase in people wanting medical assistance in dying at our hospice. And I think we've seen that around Canada as well, more people requesting that. We've had conflicts with families saying, well, no, this is not the way we do things. And then the, the resident or the patient saying, actually, this is what I want. And a lot of ethical dilemmas with us as staff kind of... Um, working with that. So I think, you know, there's so many layers of, um, of things that we see in terms of like existential distress and what causes what causes that. And I think that COVID-19 has made that even harder. Um, visitation on um, restrictions on visitation has been incredibly difficult. And I think being a healthcare worker, that's probably one of the hardest things I've had to experience for the past 14 months. I often say that I feel like I'm a jail guard. And I'm making these decisions like, yep, yeah, you can come in and no, you can't come in. And I'm making decisions as to who's like higher up on the hierarchy to come and say goodbye to a loved one. You know, we have two essential visitors, but if you have five kids, what does that mean? And having to like really turn a blind eye to be able to say, well, just come, let's just hope nobody gets COVID, you know? So I feel as if there's been so many complexities that people face at the end of life. And then this whole pandemic has just kind of added to that. I really admire those who work in long-term care in nursing homes, Nadine. It's like caregivers working in the home. We often hear they're overwhelmed. And the facilities that you're leading, they're also uh, understaffed and, and overwhelmed as well. So the needs are high, the complexity of the situations are high, and not just medically complex, but as you said, ethically complex. So I, it really resonates what you're saying. And I, I think about how I have often heard like nursing homes are the forgotten cousin of palliative care um, because the frontline nursing home staff often, you know, don't get the love and appreciation that they really deserve. Isn't it interesting that everyone in long-term care is going to die um, and the average length of stay is two years and they're going to die in the long-term care building. Mm -hmm. We don't transfer everyone to a hospice. 
So why do 10 random people end up in a hospice? Why do you think we don't have all of this care happening under one roof, like long-term care? Why don't we just, I guess what I'm saying is when people are identified at the end of their life, whether they have two years or two months or two weeks, why do we separate them in terms of buildings? We have a long-term care building and a hospice, but the care is supposed to be the same. The quality of care should be exactly the same, whether you're dying of dementia in a long-term care facility versus dying of end-stage cancer in a hospice. So why do we make that distinction in Canada? I think that's a, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, my PhD is actually in England where they do a lot of, um, there is, they do also have long-term care homes where they call them nursing homes. And then they have hospices. And it's interesting to see how, I think, you know, when we think of hospice, we think of a home-like atmosphere. We think of a buffer between hospital and home where people can get the same level of care that you would get in acute care, but still feel as if they're at home surrounded by the, you know, all the pictures on the walls and everything that makes them feel home. And then when you think of a long-term care home, people think of an institution. They think of people that are lined up at nursing stations where it smells really bad and people are in wheelchairs and um, there is no quality of life. And I think, you know, we need to change that. And we've seen that with COVID-19, that long-term care, and as, you know, as a, as a whole, we, we did not do well. We did not fare well with this pandemic. And I think it's because we've been living with a double pandemic this whole time. These issues that came up are longstanding. We've had staffing issues, you know, we've had so many things that were always there. And the pandemic really just brought this to light. And unfortunately, so many people had to die for them, for people to realize that our system was built broken. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we think of it differently. Hospice is this philosophy of care that really encompasses home and long-term care. It's like, well, when there's no other option, you just get pushed into a long-term care home. And these buildings are just, you know, where people just go to waste away and die. And I may be biased, but when you come to Kensington, that's not what it looks like. You know, people often say, well, this doesn't look like long-term care. It doesn't smell like long-term care. It doesn't feel like long-term care. And then I'm like, well, what does that actually mean? And then you hear the stories of what happened over the past 14 months, and it really scares you. So I think I think if we stopped differentiating into, like, you go into this place, and you go into this place, and you go into this place, it may break down a lot of those barriers where people think, well, this is hospice care, and this is palliative care, and what the differences are. And people more be maybe more accepting to wanting to accept this type of care because they're not kind of put into little buckets of where they should be. So I'm wondering what your own thoughts are of how do you address this? I mean, the public perceptions of this when they first come, they'll have their own ideas of what is hospice palliative care, maybe from they've gotten it from the media and from their books and things like that. Like, how do you explain it when you meet new residents of the philosophy of Kensington, and what it is that hospice palliative care is providing. So what we often find is that if I'm having a family meeting and I go in there and say it's going to be a palliative care meeting, people's shoulders go up and they don't really want to talk about it. And automatically there's a barrier. So what I've actually started to say is we're going to have a meeting focused on quality of life. And when people hear quality of life, they tend to think a little bit differently. Like, okay, is this going to help me live better? Am I going to be able to see things differently? What does that actually mean? So we've, 
we tend to approach things where people are at. And I think that's really important. And some people aren't ready to talk about end of life care and they're not ready to talk about death and dying. You know, we had, um, we had a 32 year old woman recently at our hospice who was an international student, came here for a better life and ended up getting metastatic cancer and was with us and was dying. And at her stay, she eventually said, you know what, I wanna try treatment again. So she went back for treatment and we knew this was not going to be successful, but that was her hope. And I think holding on to that hope was so important. And that's our job as healthcare providers to support whatever hope may look like. And then she ended up coming back to us and, you know, we had many conversations of what this would look like and what this would mean. And for her, she understood that she was going to die and she understood that she needed hospice palliative care. But for her parents that came from abroad, you know, a third world country, and all of a sudden were at a hospice getting hospice palliative care, had no idea what this meant. Um, it was different. And we were continuously having conversations of what this, this meant. And, you know, she only died a few weeks ago. And I remember the day before she died, I went into her room and she was um, she had a fever. And her parents believed that if they had ice in these bags and they kept rubbing her body with ice, it would help take away her fever, right? And I sat there for almost two hours with them, speaking with them through Google Translate, then speak English as they just rubbed her with ice. And I thought about, look at the hope in that ice cube. There was nothing that that could have really done to stop her from dying, but that ice cube was filled with hope. And it gave her parents the ability to think they're making a difference and they're doing something for her. So I think when we think of hospice palliative care, we think of that's hospice palliative care, you know, supporting people in ways that they never have seen things before. Sandy Buffman and I did a presentation a few years ago on palliative care and this it's a Western philosophy of palliative care. You know, it's something that was developed in England and we've adapted it in Canada and in the U.S. But when you look at countries like my parents are from Guyana, where they don't have hospice palliative care. But when someone dies, they keep them at home and they take care of them and they rally around them. They build a community. And that is palliative care. And that is hospice care. We, they just don't call it that. So I think understanding what that means for different people, the intersections with culture and how they may frame it. Because in most countries like that, whether it's Asia or, you know, wherever it is, or, um, you know, South, South America, where I'm speaking about, they do hospice care. They just don't call it the same thing that we call it. And I think that's important in understanding what it means when someone is sick and how you support your loved ones and how we can kind of meet them where they're at. Nadine, how do you infuse a palliative approach from the time a person is assessed to come into long-term care? What does that look like? So, you know, I think years ago when people were moving into long-term care, they'd come in with their suitcases and they'd ask, is there a parking spot? Um, and it was very similar to retirement, right? So Kensington was built in, in 2000. And I think that those were the demographics of people that they were seeing. And now as time has moved on, we're seeing people with many comorbidities. People are coming in on stretchers. They're coming in much sicker, you know, many bed sores. Um, it's very different and way more complexities that we had ever, ever seen before. So when we were seeing these people coming in, they were in bed the whole time. And all of a sudden they come to long-term care and there's a dining room and they can get out of bed with assistance. So we realized that with people coming in sicker, we have to start these conversations earlier. And we really speak about wishes, values, and beliefs. What's important to you? Let me know the essence. What makes you you? 
And we start conversations like that as opposed to here's four levels. Tell me what happens when you're dying. Now the conversations are more upstream of what's important to you. What gives you meaning every day? What gives you purpose every day? And starting that conversation there then drives other conversations to say, well, if you really get meaning from being autonomous and having independence, then what were to happen if you were to lose that autonomy and independence? What would that look like? Would you want assisted devices to keep you alive or not? And the conversations tend to be a lot easier when you position it from a way where people don't feel like they're losing control. So we start that from the day of admission and we move through every single meeting. We really speak about not like you're going to die, but we really start, you know, your illness is progressing or we see things changing or has things changed for you. And and we have to reiterate to people, these aren't decisions that you're making forever. So people often think, well, if I make this, is this going to be forever? Mm -hmm. We have to let them know, like anytime something happens, we do call, you make decisions at every point, there's a change in your illness, your loved one does the same. So there's been a lot of education we've done for not only our residents, but family members as well, because it puts a huge pressure on them to make these decisions. So it sounds like um, you've just described many of our episodes of our podcast, but from the healthcare providers um, side of things. So you described walking two roads where people come in and you talk about the reality of the situation. Um, you zoom out by uh, checking in with uh, residents and their families about where they're at in the illness journey. Um, and you customize their order by talking about their goals of care. So um, really what we try to do with the podcast episodes is teach patients and families a way of coming to the healthcare system with new skills and new mindsets without using the P word. And if they naturally move from the back seat of their journey into the front seat of their journey, more activated and in the know, they will naturally get a palliative approach from whoever is caring for them, but they'll extract it with these seven keys. But what you just described was a really nice way to give the other side of what a palliative approach looks like. Nadine, we designed this podcast for patients and families, but we've also had a lot of healthcare providers become fans. And they tell us, I'm so glad you're starting this conversation. So I'm wondering if you from the front lines have seen a change in the perspective of other healthcare professionals as well, not just at your institution, but in other nursing homes and other circles that you're talking to, and if there's been a shift in the role of hospice palliative care, that it's not something that should just be reserved for end of life and at the 11th hour? Are you seeing a change in culture too? Um, I definitely think things are changing. When I started in hospice care 15 years ago, no one was talking about hospice care. No one was talking about palliative care. My dad, who is a, a professor at Dalhousie, when I told him I wanted to work in hospice care, he said to me, are you serious? He's like, that's so depressing. He's like, don't do that. He's like, just be like me, go do health administration. And I was like, actually, no, that's not me. So I didn't listen and I went on my path. And then he called me about five years into my career and said, wow, Nadine, good job on choosing palliative care. That's where the healthcare system is headed. I thought, okay, because five years ago, nobody was dying, right? And now as time has gone on, we've seen this more. We've seen people speaking more about hospice care and palliative care. And over the past 14 months, 
globally, we've been having a conversation about hospice palliative care, mm -hmm. even, you know, just organically, people are talking more about death, they're talking more about dying, we're talking about grief and trauma in ways that we have never spoken about before. So I think there's a huge shift. I think where we've seen, you know, the biggest impacts of COVID-19, there's now a lot of work that has to be done to really amp up that palliative care, long-term care being one of those biggest sectors. COVID has been such a game changer, right? And the long-term care sector was hit particularly hard. And on top of that, there were major restrictions on visitation, including of caregivers who are essential care partners. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what was it? light from the inside. In our long-term care home, nobody could visit. And the first thing the Ministry of Health did was um, put restrictions on visitation. So they basically ruined the philosophy of palliative care. They basically didn't understand the philosophy of palliative care and the importance of human touch. And healthcare workers like PSWs and nurses and physicians turned into pseudo family members because we were the ones sitting at the bedside when families couldn't be there. And I remember you know, Teams, Microsoft Teams, it has this really like different ring. And every time our phones rang, we knew something had happened. Either there was a positive staff, there was a positive resident, or somebody was dying of COVID. And it always happened on a Friday afternoon. And I remember one Friday, um, you know, we got home and we had, um, I think it was on that unit, we had 24 residents. And I think like 20 out of the 24 something tested positive for COVID. And you know, we were just trying our best to, to stay afloat and we had staff off. We Everything was just a real, real struggle. And, you know, I do a, a lot of these lectures and it took me about a year to speak about this stuff without me crying, just remembering the trauma that was experienced. Mm -hmm. And that Friday night, I thought, you know, we have to do something about visitation. We have to there, we have to do better. And I think just serendipitously. The, um, the first floor, which are which are, was our severely demented our, our residents who were living with severe dementia on that unit. And so, so they don't understand, stay in your room and socially isolate. And that's all, that's a privilege, right? Being able to do all of these things. So of course, COVID is going to spread on these units. And that was the only unit where we can access our outside gardens from the street. And then there was a dining room. So one Friday night, I said, you know what? Everybody basically on the unit has COVID anyways. So let's push the people who are dying their bed into the dining room. And I'm going to bring the family through the garden. There's an emergency door. I'll have my phone. Let, they'll have an iPad on the inside and that's how they'll say goodbye. And we did about, about five of those visits. And I remember one Friday, there was one woman who was like, you know, she was coming up the up the sidewalk and she had this 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 pep in her step because she hadn't seen her father in so long. And and then she came to meet with me and I was like, you know, we were having this visit because your dad is, you know, headed towards the end of life. And she looked at me and she said, what do you mean? My dad's not dying. She's like, COVID is 14 days and he's already on day 12. So if he makes it two more days, he's fine. He's going to live. And I thought, Oh gosh, this is this is not the conversation that I thought I was going to be having outside of this emergency door. So I kind of sat with her on a bench for a while and we spoke about his illness and how like things had taken a turn. And she went to see him and I just remember her saying, "Don't worry, dad. You just got two more days. And if you make it to those 14 days, you're going to be okay." And what we know with COVID, it's actually the second or third week where people tend to get the most sick. And after our visit ended, the way she walked down the sidewalk was so different from when she approached me the first time, you know, there was no pep in her step. And that Friday night, I got home and my team's call started to ring. 
and the staff called and said that this man had just died. And then 15 minutes later, I got a call saying that another resident had just died. So myself and uh, another director, I live in Brampton, we, um, we just got back in our cars and we drove all the way back down because we didn't know what else to do. And then we went into you know, the rooms where funeral homes were no longer able to come into hospices or long-term care. So now staff also had to prepare the bodies, which was something that they never actually had to do. We went in and everyone was in full PPE and all you could see was each other's eyes. And all I could see was pain, was tears, was trauma. And all we did was just stand there and cry. There was absolutely nothing else that we could do. And when I think of like the impacts of this and, you know, the, the conversations we're having about hospice palliative care, I now think of the intersects of like trauma, grief, what's going to happen, the aftermath of the pandemic that we're now going to face, not only with, you know, family members who are going to have to remember how their loved one died, but our healthcare providers mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. there at the front line, who we keep coining our quote unquote resilient, which keeps driving me kind of nuts because I don't think it's resilience. I think we just have to keep going because that's the profession that we do. So I think there's an aftermath and there's conversations that are going to build about hospice palliative care as a result of this pandemic. Thank you for that graphic um, depiction of what went on. Um, and, you know, in long-term care during COVID, it's heart-wrenching. It's a hard pill to swallow, really. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of the trauma that people were experiencing, whether or not it had anything to do with the difference between what feels like a sudden death versus an expected death. Mm -hmm. So in a hospice, people know what's coming at some point and they start stealing themselves and, and preparing uh, for what's going to happen. But what you experienced in long-term care, even though the big picture is, is that people do have a progressive illness and they are going to die eventually. When COVID hit, it hit fast and people died sooner than would have been expected and seemed rather sudden. What's your experience caring for people or healthcare providers who experience a sudden death versus an expected death? I think that's a really great question. You know, it was funny because on our unit where we were the hardest hit with COVID, the staff were saying, wow, we've become the hospice. This feels like, is this what the hospice is like? And we had hospice staff actually come over and were supporting our staff on this, right? And I think the sudden death was hard for us because when people come to long-term care, they come to long-term care to be protected. And to, you know, we kept everybody in this bubble wrap. We tried our hardest, but this, this virus just permeated anything. And there was nothing that you could really do to really try to keep people as safe as you could, as much as you tried. And I mean, there was tons that could have been done um, to avoid what happened. But I mean, we weren't as, our home wasn't as badly hit as some of the other homes, which were horrific. And I think there are systemic issues as to why that happened and why homes were impacted that way. But when we look at, you know, why people come into long-term care, any type of care setting, it's to be cared for. And then to have, you know, it was awful making those phone calls to family members and saying, I'm sorry, but your loved one has COVID. Those were the worst phone calls we were making. And then to say, well, you can't come in and visit because of wave one. So what we did was every single day, we, we have 25 people on a unit. We broke it up and we called every family member every day, regardless of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the sudden death was hard because of the reason why people were dying. 
because of the visitation restrictions of people not being able to say goodbye. So, you know, I recently had someone say to me, she's going out to see her mom in a retirement home. And her mom said, I never thought I would get to see you again before I died. Mm-hmm. And how awful is that? And how mm-hmm. sad is that? That people are thinking they're going to die without seeing their loved one again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people struggled with. You know, when people apply to come to long-term care, it's not like people wait to come to long-term care and say, I can't wait to retire and go to long-term care. Mm-hmm. That's nobody's dream and nobody's mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. But there's so much guilt from family members when people have to move into long-term care because people feel as if I should have been able to care for them. Mm-hmm. And then when you get a phone call saying, well, actually, your loved one died of COVID-19, it's like, well, I put them there and I made the decision for them to move into this home. And like, are these the ramifications of whatever, you know, the decisions I made? Mm-hmm. And then with the expected death at the hospice, you know, as much as death is expected, it's still hard when somebody dies. And the restrictions on visitations made that hard at the hospice. You know, hospice is about having... 10,000 people around your bed singing kumbaya if that's what's important to you and we all fold hands and you know we're there when someone is actively dying and that's what brings people joy and happiness is having the most important people around you because at the end of the life of life the mundane things matter the most and then there was all these restrictions and I think that's what made um, sudden death and expected death the hardest the not having to say goodbye the worry of, am I going to get COVID coming into these places? Am I going to give somebody COVID? Like there was so much worry. I think that made it hard. You know, when that young girl died recently and her parents were just so emotional and her mom kind of just fell into our arms. It's awful to think that I was thinking, should I be hugging her? Like, I'm not supposed to be doing this or can I touch her Mm -hmm. hand? And then I was like, well, I'm going to do it anyways, because Mm -hmm. what am I going to do at this point? Right? Mm -hmm. So you're thinking about sudden death, you're thinking about expected death, but you're also thinking about restrictions and like, oh, six feet away. Oh, you got to keep my mask on. Oh, I can't touch this person. The essence of what we really do is human connection. You know? mm-hmm. Nadine, COVID aside, um, do you find that when people are coming to long-term care that uh, they are in the know about their illness or do you find that they're in a gray zone? They're not truly understanding their condition and where things are headed. Are you having to do the work of what many teams should have done before they got to the front door of the long-term care? Absolutely. More often than not, um, I would say almost most people moving into long-term care do not have those conversations about um palliative care, about advanced care planning, about trajectory of illness and what this is going to look like. Um, I definitely don't think so. I think, you know, people don't actually ever talk about people dying of dementia. You know, palliative care is often very focused on oncology. And what we find more is that those other illnesses like dementia, COPD, CHF, those illnesses tend to sometimes be forgotten because people don't often think of the reactiveness of palliative care because they are longer trajectory illnesses than other ones. So we do have a lot of these conversations. Most of the time we're having them. And what condition are the caregivers in when they, when they arrive? Yeah. You know, I think our caregivers are, there's so much distress. um, There's so much guilt. Um, It's, it's heartbreaking at times. What we saw actually a few years ago was that people were moving into long-term care and then their caregivers were moving in under spousal reunification. And then their, um, their, the caregiver was dying faster than the person that had moved into long-term care. Really? And I thought that was so interesting because they had taken care of them, their loved one for so long. And when they finally sat down, it was like, well, I'm sick too. So 
we see a ton of um, guilt, we see a ton of, you know, emotions, whether it's being sad and, you know, grief and loss and trauma from, from all of the care that they've been providing from being at home for so long, from not being able to manage and then really quickly having to make a decision to move into a home. If I may, can I go back to something you mentioned earlier? I mean, you talked about working with lower income neighborhoods and serving populations who are housing vulnerable and facing other structural vulnerabilities. So what is important to know about serving these populations that often gets overlooked, especially in the context of serious illness in a long-term care home? Um, I think it's really, really important to know that, you know, there's not a one-size-fit-all model for um, supporting someone at the end of life. So I remember someone saying to me, so Kensington's mandate is that we have to support, I think it's like 20 or 25% have to be structurally vulnerable. And we never hit that target. And I remember Nahid saying to me, well, Nadine, it's because people can't relate to your hospice, right? It's really beautiful, but it doesn't relate to them. And I remember I thought, what does he actually mean, right? And then I, we, we've supported a number of people now who are structurally vulnerable. And how awful is it that for these people's lives, they've lived their whole lives like they don't matter. And then all of a sudden they're dying and they're at a hospice and everybody wants to take care of them and all their needs are met and they're in this beautiful place and you know they get food of their choice and it's like, well, now I matter. When I'm actually dying, I matter. You know, what I've learned is that you have to be flexible. You can't have the same model of care for everybody. And you have to understand that everybody's needs are going to be different. I think we have to understand our own unconscious bias and like, you know, what that means when we're supporting someone who's structurally vulnerable and they're automatically moving in. So we had a man recently who, who was with us during the, um, the end of last year. And when he started, um, when he moved in, he was constantly coming out of his room and staff, I was getting phone calls all night saying, you know what, Nadine, he's breaking isolation and he's wandering. And I was like, well, actually, he's not wandering. There's an unmet need. So what is the unmet need? And he just wanted to go outside. Of course, right? You have someone who's been structurally vulnerable living on the streets. Then they move into a hospice, which is structured. Then we say stay in this room for 14 days and you can't leave. Of course, he's going to want to leave, right? So... It took a lot of education to say, well, let's use different wording. Let's not just say, you know, wandering like he is living with dementia because he's not. Um, let's change the way we're approaching things and really understanding the impact that trauma made on his life and the way he the way he was as a person. And I think that was really important. And he was really intuitive to the staff that came in and really looked at him as a person. And he would say, I don't want that staff here again. And then he would say, I like this person. I want them here. And I think he often felt seen and he felt heard by certain people who weren't nervous around him, who didn't, who didn't feel like, you know, he was kind of on edge and would explode, quote unquote, at any moment. And we built really strong relationships with him. And he said to us, you know, when I die, I want to be wearing an all white suit and I want to be wearing Converse shoes. And that's what we did. And he went out looking like the rock star that he was. And I think that's what's important is we have to understand the trauma that people have been through in their lives, but we can't judge them on the traumas that they've been through in their lives. We have to understand the impact that that trauma has made and how that continues to impact their lives and how we can make it be different in kind of approaching their care to meet them where they're at. And I think that's really important with the, with the, with the population of people who are structurally vulnerable. 
If you could offer advice to people early in an illness journey, even before long-term care, in the earliest parts after diagnosis, what advice would you give so that their journey is more woke or in the know? I think, I think that I would, you know, I would, I would really speak to them about living. Often when we get diagnosed with illness, people think they're dying and they just focus on the dying. I would focus on the living and let them know that you can still live. And there's many ways in which you can live. It just might look a little different. I would encourage them to be really open-minded and really accept care that they never thought they would need. Um, a lot of the time, you know, people think I don't need that and I don't want that and I'm fine. And and I think that's what's important is letting people know that you do not have to lose the, the essence of who you are. We can still find ways of making you you because we often meet people in this weird phase of who they're not, who they never, who they're, you know, the past is there and they're not that person anymore. The future is uncertain and they uncertain and they don't know who they're going to be. And now they're in this weird phase of what is, and we're getting to know them during this phase of what is, and they don't even know themselves. Mm -hmm. So letting them know, like you can still be the person that you would like to be just with the right supports. And speaking about palliative care, as uncomfortable as it may be, and I often say to people, if we're making, if we're having uncomfortable conversations, it's likely because it's a conversation we should be having. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we speak about this in nuggets, so not like this information dump where it's like, okay, here you go, let's dump it and walk away. I think as you move through illness, you meet many different faces of many different healthcare providers. And it's each of our jobs to connect that invisible thread of palliative care every time there's a stop. Amazing. Nadine. <laughs> Nadine, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and I really appreciate being part of this. Oh, Nadine. it was so fun to have you. Yeah. It's really, um, it, it's really eye-opening to hear through your stories uh, what life is like and what it has been like over this past uh, pandemic. And so um, thank you very much for all the kindness that you've shown your uh, residents and your families and all the care settings that you um, are responsible for. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a real, real pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.